You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our Advent series, Love Came Down, a look at the meaning and message of Christmas. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. If you please open with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, and while you're doing that, I'd like to dismiss our middle schoolers. Middle schoolers, if there's any of you here today, we uh, invite you to join the middle school class, which meets down the stairs there. Uh, to your left. Today is the second Sunday in Advent. Advent is the four weeks leading up to Christmas. And uh, the word Advent comes from the Latin phrase Adventus Domini, which means the coming of the Lord. And historically, this is a time when Christians around the world focus their hearts and their minds on the coming of Jesus into the world. And so, Here at Whitefields, for the season of Advent, we're going to be doing a uh, break. We're going to take in a break from our regular Sunday morning study, which we've been going through the book of Exodus on Sunday mornings, and we're going to be looking at the meaning and the message of Christmas in this series for the month of December called Love Came Down. So if you would open with me in your Bibles, so if you need a Bible, go ahead and put your hand up in the air. We'll make sure you get one to follow along. You can follow along in the Bible app. We recommend the YouVersion Bible app. But our text today comes from Matthew chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. After leaving Nazareth, he, Jesus, went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the fact that you have come to us. Lord, what an amazing message this is, that you, the Lord of the earth, Lord, the King of creation, the King of the universe, you have bow down and come to us. Thank you, Lord, for this great display of love. And we pray that as we study today, Lord, it would become clear to us all the implications of what this means for us. So, Lord, we ask that you'd open the eyes of our hearts to see you in your words, to see you clearly. And, Lord, we pray that you would touch our hearts and motivate us to live for you as we see the gospel of what you've done for us. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, so, Christmas is, uh, is an interesting time of year for s- several reasons. One of the reasons that makes uh, Christmas interesting is that it's, it's a Christian holiday, but yet at the same time, it's also a huge secular holiday, maybe the biggest that our culture has. And so you end up with this situation in which you have people celebrating Christmas who have no connection whatsoever to Christianity. It's almost like two parallel celebrations that happen at the exact same time, one secular and one religious. Uh, you know, at Christmas time, everybody participates, no matter what their beliefs, whether they're religious or non-religious, or even if they hold different religious beliefs. You know, Christmas is a very popular holiday all around the world, including places like Japan, including places like the Middle East, places where you would say, well, wait a second, what, what's the connection to Christianity that these people have? And they don't have one, but they celebrate Christmas. And the ways that people participate are very visible, very visible ways. For example, you know, we put up Christmas decorations, we sing Christmas songs, we have Christmas carolers, and of course, the biggest thing in our culture is Christmas presents. One of the very first signs of the Christmas season is the appearance of 
Christmas lights on houses and buildings. This year, my next door neighbor, he's very, you know, zealous about Christmas decorations. This year, he had his decorations up, I checked, on November 19th. Like, I still had a rotten pumpkin, you know, in front of my front door on November 19th. And he has his Christmas lights up, and, you know, it's like a big display. Uh, I'm considering risking my life this week and putting some Christmas lights up, but I'm thinking that pretty soon I'm going to convert into one of those guys who just leaves my Christmas lights up all year long and just plugs them in in December. That seems like a much better solution than in in the icy month of the year climbing up on my roof when it's slippery. Anyway, there's something about Christmas lights, these lights shining in the cold darkness of a December night, this darkest month of the year, there's something about that image, there's something about the feel of it, of light shining in the darkness. It's a great image, and it really captures what Christmas is about. You see, those lights are not just decorative. In a way, they're absolutely symbolic of what Christmas is all about. This symbol of light shining in the darkness. You could even go as far as to say an outside form of light shining in the darkness, illuminating the cold darkness. The symbolism also of how we celebrate the coming of Jesus into the world on the darkest night of the entire year. Think about the symbolism. Up until that night, things are getting darker and darker. The night gets longer and longer. And then after that point, the darkness breaks in a way and the nights get shorter our world becomes a continually brighter place these are symbols that speak of who Jesus is and why he came and what his coming means the title of today's message is the dawn of a new day and here are the three things that we're going to see from the text which we just read first of all we're going to talk about the darkness which we dwell in the darkness we dwell in secondly we're going to talk about the light of the world thirdly we're going to talk about the day that is dawning. So the darkness we dwell in, the light of the world, and the day that is dawning. Let's begin by talking about the darkness we dwell in. Here in Matthew chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, here's the setting. Jesus has already been born. He's already grown up, and now he's beginning his earthly ministry. And the way Matthew introduces him to us, he actually introduces him several times, but as he begins his ministry, Matthew introduces us to Jesus by making sure we understand that Jesus' coming into the world was the fulfillment of something which had been spoken by the prophet Isaiah some 700 years, maybe even 750 years prior to his coming. So the passage he's referring to is found in Isaiah chapter 9. If you would like, you can turn there with me. We're going to be reading a little bit from Isaiah chapter 9. So what Matthew quotes is part of the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9, but not the entire thing. So we're going to flip over to Isaiah chapter 9 and look at these verses here. The passage begins like this. In Isaiah chapter 9 verse 1, In the former time he brought contempt, I mean God brought contempt Uh, brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way by the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, or Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, just some little background here. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali, this was the northern region of Israel. This is the area around the Sea of Galilee. Uh, For much of Israel's history, this region had really been kind of like the bad part of Israel. This was kind of the wrong side of the tracks. It was an area of disrepute. Israel had experienced a golden age. The golden age of Israel 
was the, the period of King David and King Solomon. It was under King David and King Solomon that the kingdom grew to its greatest size, that the kingdom was unified. Under Solomon especially, the kingdom became, uh, the unified kingdom of Israel became very wealthy and very powerful. In fact, it became one of the most powerful and wealthy countries in the world. But after the death of Solomon, his son Rehoboam came and took over. And what happened is there was another guy named Jeroboam. And long story short, the kingdom of Israel and Judah, they split into two separate kingdoms. That happened after the death of Solomon. And of course, both kingdoms weakened. You had the kingdom of Judah in the south around the area of Jerusalem. And you had the kingdom of Israel in the north around the area of Galilee. So Judah was... uh, Again, the kingdom of Judah, the difference in their history is that Judah had many good and godly kings throughout the years. Uh, people who led the people to God, brought them back to the word of God, brought them back to the ordinances that God had called them to keep and to be faithful to him. But the kingdom of Israel really was plagued by bad kings and evil kings who, who led the people into idolatry and who led the people into sin and wickedness. And so what happened as a result of that, God sent prophets, you know, Jeremiah, he sent Isaiah, these prophets to call the people of Israel, the northern kingdom, into repentance, to turn back to God and and to come back to him and and to stop ignoring the word of God. And so, uh, you know, the people though in Israel, they just ignored the words of the prophets, they did not receive them. And so to get their attention, God told them, if, if you won't listen, I'm going to have to do something drastic to get your attention. And so finally, God did something that drastic. He allowed the Assyrian Empire to come into northern Israel and to defeat them militarily and carry off many of them into captivity. Because they're not really that much different than many of us, right? Sometimes the only thing that really gets our attention and causes us to, to go to our knees and really turn back to God, for some of us, it, it takes some kind of crisis in our life for us to do that. Now, hopefully, that wouldn't be the case with most of us. But for some of us, that's just the facts. It's, it takes some kind of adversity to really get our attention and get us focused back on God. It's when the diagnosis comes back positive that you begin to pray again. It's when the job is lost. It's when the spouse says, I want a divorce. These are the kinds of things that tend to cause us to say, wait a second, I need to refocus, get back on my knees, turn back to God. For some of us, it takes something that serious to get our attention. And that was certainly the case for the people of northern Israel, uh, the kingdom of Israel. Uh, They were overcome by the Assyrians Many of the people were carried off into captivity for many years. So during that time, you have this area where it's been depopulated. And so what happened is that many people who were foreigners, foreign nations, moved into that region in the area of Galilee. And that is why it became known as Galilee of the nations, or more properly, we should say Galilee of the Gentiles. Because by the time the Assyrian occupation ended and the the people of northern Israel returned to their homeland, they were now minorities in their own homeland. There, was, there were more Gentiles living in that area than Jewish people. <coughs> and so the northern part of Israel around the Sea of Galilee for a long time was considered in an area of disrepute, the wrong side of the tracks, the bad part of Israel. But here's what Isaiah the prophet says. And remember, he says this at a time when the, the northern part of Israel was really at its worst. He says this, Zebulun and Naphtali have been a place of contempt. 
But there's a time coming, the time will come, when God will make the area around Galilee a glorious place. He will do a glorious thing in that place, even though it has been an area of disrepute. And then he goes on to tell us how God will do that, what that means, what he's actually saying. He says in verse 2, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell, or those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has come. And here's what that means. Verse 6 and 7, he says exactly what he's talking about. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time and forevermore. In Matthew chapter 4, Matthew is introducing us to Jesus and he's telling us, he's reminding us of this ancient prophecy and he's telling us that this prophecy is about Jesus. So what does this prophecy tell us? First of all, it tells us some bad news. And the bad news is this. We are a people who dwell in darkness. In fact, he says we dwell in deep darkness. And even more than that, he says we dwell in the shadow of death. You see, here's the thing about Christmas. Before Christmas can be a joy, Christmas is first an indictment. Before Christmas can be a joy, it is first an indictment. The, the first message of Christmas is that we are a people who dwell in darkness. Now in the Bible, the word darkness refers to two things. It refers to evil and it refers to ignorance. Evil and ignorance. So first of all, it means that the world we live in is a world which is full of injustice and suffering. If you look around the world at the time that Jesus was born, you, you see that very thing. What was it characterized? It was characterized by uh, violence and oppression and evil political leaders. Herod the Great was the ruler at that time and he did crazy things like he ordered all of the baby boys in, in one town to be murdered. And, and he was such a terrible ruler that people were fleeing their homes. They were leaving their homeland. They were becoming homeless. They were becoming refugees in other countries. Now think about the world we live in today. Certainly we've improved a lot since then, right? We've, we've come a long way. Well, I don't know, have we? Uh, there have been 701 homicides in Chicago this year, uh, just in the city of Chicago. 40 or 4,050 people have been shot this year in Chicago, and that's statistics from like four days ago, so probably it's actually higher now. Every year, on average, 40 million babies are aborted around the world. We have a refugee crisis around our world. There's war in Syria, there's war in Iraq, there's war in Ukraine. Much of the world lives still in crushing poverty. People abuse and hurt each other and leave lasting scars on other people. Clearly, there is darkness in our world. We would be wrong to not admit that. There is evil, there's injustice, there's suffering, there's sickness, there's sorrow, and there's pain. And here's what's even worse. It's that we don't know how to fix the problem, right? This evil and ignorance, this is what darkness means. We don't know how to fix the problem. We, we try to make things better, and, and we have. We must admit we've made progress in certain areas, but no matter how much progress we make, it doesn't get rid of the darkness. 
And no matter how much we educate people, no matter how much money we put in people's pockets, it doesn't get rid of the darkness. It just creates people who have education and money who still have darkness in them, right? Um, and here's, here's the reason we can't get rid of the darkness. This is the reason the problem is actually even bigger than we, we even at first realized. Because it's not just that we live in a dark world. The problem is actually even more severe than that. The problem is that the darkness is actually inside of us. You see, it's woven into the fabric of our being. In other words, darkness isn't just around us. It's not just the other bad people out there. It's actually inside of us. See, the whole of the Bible tells us this, that this is the problem. There's darkness in the world, but the darkness isn't something that's just outside of us and around us. It's actually Within us, the darkness is inside each of us, even the best of us. Think about the story of Noah. You know, the story of Noah really proves this point beyond any shadow of a doubt. Here's, here's the story of Noah. God created the world in the beginning, right? And he created it in perfection. And he gave those people that he created, he gave them a choice, a choice to trust and obey him or the choice to reject him and rebel against him. And the people chose to rebel they chose darkness rather than light. And, and when, you, when they did that, not only did darkness come into the world, but darkness came into them. And it affected all those who came after them. And the proof of that is seen in the generations that follow. I mean, their own children immediately after them, we see violence and murder taking place. We see in the following generations there in Genesis, people turning away from God to the point where at one point, in all the world, there's only like one guy in hundreds of years of history that God can point to and say, this guy walked with God. And it says there in, uh, in Genesis chapter 6, it says that in Genesis chapter 5, it says that there were several generations that went by. That's the time when I'm talking about. There was really only one person in hundreds of years who walked with God. If you add up the numbers, it's like 1,600 years, and, then, and during that time it tells us there that the number of people on the earth, the population of the earth, increased greatly. The population of earth multiplied. And it says there in Genesis chapter 6 that God looked upon the earth and the population had grown, and it says that he was grieved to the heart because he saw the wickedness, and he said that he saw that wickedness was great on the earth, and he looked at the people he had created, and it says, every intention of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil all the time. And God was so grieved by this, he could see the evil that the people were doing, he could see the evil in their hearts, the ways they were hurting each other, and it made him so extremely sad to the point where he wished that maybe it would have been better if he would have never created mankind at all. And it says there that God looked at the earth and he saw it was corrupt and full of violence, and so he determined to do something. He's gonna start over. And here's what God will do. This is the plan. He's going to pick the very best person, the very best person in all the earth, and we're going to start over. Surely, right, if we could get rid of the bad people, then we could solve the problem of darkness. So let's get rid of the bad people. Let's get rid of the wicked people. If we just wipe out everybody and start over with only the very best person, that would solve the problem of darkness in the world, wouldn't it? So here's what it tells us about Noah in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. It introduces us to Noah in this way. It says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and Noah walked with God. I mean, what more do you want? He was blameless, never did anything wrong. He's righteous, and he walks with God. He's the best person in the entire world. And so God chooses Noah and his family, and he pushes the reset button 
on the world. He sends this flood. Everything's wiped out. Noah and his family are the only ones who survive. But then guess what happens? Did that solve the problem of darkness? No, it didn't. See, Noah, he, he gets through this whole thing. He sees God's faithfulness, and then he gets off the boat, and he starts growing grapes, and then he starts making wine, and then he starts getting drunk, and then one day he's passed out naked, and then one of his sons comes and does something um, inappropriate, and it's so bad that this son gets a curse pronounced over him. And then guess what? We're right back to where we started. Darkness, people rejecting God, people doing evil. And here's the point. These were the best people in the entire world. We got rid of all the bad people. We kept only the good people who walk with God and who are righteous and blameless. And we still end up in darkness. And why? Because the darkness is within even the best of us. It's within the heart of each and every one of us, even the very best of us. Now, think about this. Do you think that God was surprised that that didn't work out? He was like, dang, I really thought this was going to work, and it didn't. No, not at all. I believe that God knew exactly what was going to happen, and, and part of the purpose of this story is to prove to us for all of history the only way to get rid of darkness in the world would be to destroy the world, to not leave anyone or anything left. Because even if you just leave one person behind, even the very best person in the world, you won't be able to get rid of darkness because the darkness isn't outside of us. It's bound up within each and every one of us. And this is something the Bible teaches throughout. The purpose of the laws in the Old Testament are to help us see this very fact, to make clear to us, here's the standard of perfection, and no one, no one has ever lived up to it perfectly. The psalm writer comes and he says the same thing. From conception... I have had sin within me. The prophets tell us this too. Jeremiah tells us, don't trust your heart. You know this axiom like, hey, trust your heart. He says, no. You know what? The heart, our own hearts deceive us. They'll mislead us. Our own hearts are naturally inclined to rebel against God and be hard against God. And what we need more than anything is for God to give us a new heart, to remove the heart that is hard towards God, the heart of stone, and give us a soft heart towards God. We need to be changed and renewed at the very core of who we are. Jeremiah tells us this promise. He says, you know what? One day, God will do exactly that. And then Jesus comes, and and in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus says this incredible phrase. He says, you know what? It's not what you do outwardly that defiles you. It's what's already inside of you. That's what defiles you. And it's from what's already inside of you that evil thoughts and murder, adultery, immorality, theft, lies, slander, all of these things come from the darkness which is already in your heart. What you need is a new heart. And then Paul the Apostle comes along, and he tells us, Look, this is why we are all our own worst enemy. We do the things we hate. We don't do the things that we we believe that we should, that we desire to do because there's something inside of us. There's a force inside of us which is opposed to us. And he says, he cries out, who will save me? Who will save me from this darkness which is bound up inside of me? And then he reaches this grand crescendo where he says, I can't do it, but thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, because he has come and set me free from the curse of sin and death. He has come to set me free from the darkness that is within me. See, here's the thing. Before Christmas can be a joy, it is first an indictment. The first message of Christmas is that we are a people who walk in darkness, in deep darkness. We are people who live in the shadow of death. And that's bad news. But there is good news. The good news of Christmas is this, that the people dwelling in darkness have seen a light. 
those dwelling in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Now notice it doesn't say, from them a light has sprung. In other words, it doesn't come from within us. It doesn't come from among us. On them a light has dawned. In other words, it has come from the outside upon us. The message of Christmas is incredibly honest and real and yet incredibly hopeful because it says the world is a dark place. You've even got darkness within you, but there is hope. A light has come. And so let's talk about that light. That's our second point here, the light of the world. After telling us, about the darkness we dwell in, Isaiah tells us the good news. A light has come into the world, and this light, he says, is actually a person. In fact, it's not just any person. It's a child who will be born, who will be also, so it's a child who will be born, who will be God Almighty. He will be the everlasting Father. In other words, the eternal God, the creator of the world, and yet he will be born somehow. Now, how incredible is that? This person who will be both fully God and fully human at the same time, this person will be the Messiah. He will establish a kingdom which will last forever. John's gospel tells us this about Jesus. It says, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light which gives life to everyone was coming into the world. Here's what life or here's what light does. Light does at least three things that I can think of. I'm sure it does more, but light gives life. It, it reveals truth, and it's a source of beauty. So light gives life. It reveals truth, and it's a source of beauty. So Jesus says the light of the world. That is exactly what he does. He comes into our lives. He gives life. He reveals truth, and he is the ultimate source of beauty and joy. He is the solution to the problem of darkness in the world and darkness inside of us. And this is the message of the gospel, that Jesus Christ came into the world. Although he was God Almighty, although he was the everlasting Father, he was born as one of us. He left glory and radiance and light and he entered into our darkness that he might bring us light and life. We read in Matthew chapter 27 where we read about Jesus' crucifixion. And it says there that as Jesus hung on the cross, darkness fell upon the land. What was happening at that moment was that the light of the world had come and he took our darkness upon himself. It descended upon him and he did that in order to bring us into God's wonderful light. He came to give us life by giving us new hearts, by untangling the darkness that is wrapped uh, within us. He came to reveal the truth to us. He came to be our source of beauty and joy. St. Augustine said this. He says, what makes a person who they are is what they love. Just ponder that. It's pretty, pretty deep. He says, what makes a person who they are is what they love. Therefore, the way to change a person is by changing what they love. If you want to change somebody, change what they love. The problem, as we've discussed, is what Jesus said himself People have loved darkness instead of light. But Jesus, now, he comes into the world and he is the ultimate beauty for us to see, both in who he is and his perfection and how he lived and ultimately how he laid down his life for us. In him is ultimate beauty, the beauty of perfection, the beauty of true love. What we see, this beauty, we can't help but desire it to the point where the more clearly we see this beauty, the more we will desire his light in our life more than we desire darkness. And as that happens, it breaks our addictions to darkness. 
So the question for us is this, how do we get this light which is able to save us from the darkness which is in the world and the darkness which is even within us? The text tells us, here's how. To us a child is born and then it tells us beyond that, it tells us something else. To us a son is given. Given. It's a gift. God has given this gift to us, the gift of his son. You see, the message of Christmas is both a sobering indictment and an incredible hope. The message of Christmas is that you and I, we are so entangled in darkness and so unable to save ourselves that God himself had to die for us. But the message of the cross is that God loves you so much that he was glad to die for you. God himself had to die for you, but God loves you so much that he was glad to die for you. That's the message of Christmas. In order to accept the gift of Jesus, the light of the world, you first have to admit that there's darkness within you, that you dwell in darkness and in the shadow of death and you need God's light to set you free and give you new life to change your desires so that you love the light rather than the darkness. And that brings us now, once you get to that point, then what's next? That brings us to the the ultimate hope of Jesus' coming, the day that is dawning. Here in our text, a metaphor is used to describe the coming of, of God's light into the world. We're told that with the coming of Jesus into the world, God's light has dawned on a dark world. So this metaphor of dawn, interestingly, is actually found throughout the Bible many times. This metaphor of dawn, this shift from night to day. Uh, In Romans chapter 13, here's an example. Paul says this, And do this knowing the time, that it is now high time to awake from our sleep, For our salvation is now nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent and the day is at hand. What Paul is saying is that since the coming of Jesus into the world, where we are at spiritually in the history of the world is dawn. Now one of the names that Jesus gives himself in in Revelation chapter 22, he calls himself, he says, I am the bright morning star. So this past summer, I climbed uh, Long's Peak with a couple friends and we, uh, we left pretty early, I guess, for climbing it. We left at 11 p.m. So we ended up climbing, um, you know, a lot of the way up to the top in the dark. We were using headlamps the whole way. And so around 5 a.m., maybe a little bit before 5 a.m., we saw first light, the first light of dawn. And at first, you know, when dawn happens, it kind of seems like everything's the same, that nothing's really changed. But after a while, you start to notice it's not quite as dark as it was before. And then, after a while, you realize that you no longer need your headlamp anymore. The stars which have been visible all night long now begin to fade from view until there's only one star left in the sky, which is known historically as the morning star. And you might know that the morning star is not actually a star at all. It's actually the planet Venus. But it is the last sign of the dawn. It's the last star that you can see in this night into day. And the next thing which will happen after you see the morning star is that the sun will rise over the horizon and day will come and the darkness will be fully driven out. And so the way the Bible describes to us where we are at today within the, in the scope of spiritual history, it uses the word dawn. It says it's like the dawn and Jesus has come as the morning star, the last sign of the dawn and the new day that is coming. Dawn is an interesting time, right? Dawn is neither night nor day. It's something else. It's both at the same time, but yet it's neither. It's dawn. The day is coming. The night is leaving 
and at dawn, they are both present at the same time, yet neither of them is present in full force. It's still dark, but it's not as dark as it was. And the light has come into the world, but it's not there yet in full force. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, it says this, We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises on your hearts. Here's the thing about dawn, though. Once it starts, it's unstoppable. There's no turning back. It's only a matter of time now uh, that the sun will rise and the new day will begin. And the ultimate hope of the Bible is the hope of this new day, which is to come. Now, what will this new day be like? That's the question. Now, let's, let's look at the passages we've looked at so far and see what it says about the new day to come. First of all, we've got this text here in Isaiah chapter 9. And here's what it says there in that second part where it talks about this child who will be born, the son who will be given. It says that he will bring in this kingdom. And during that time, it will be a new day, a day that lasts forever. And during that time, God will reign as king. And there will be peace in the world, true peace. And there will be justice. And things will finally be right the way they should be. Now, we read a passage from our call to worship. I want to bring your attention back to that passage as well. Isaiah chapter 60, it begins like this. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, a thick darkness, uh, and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. And then he goes on in verse 19 to 20 to describe what this new day will be like once the day has fully dawned. He says, the sun shall no more be your light by day, nor, the, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, nor the Lord will be your everlasting, or he says, but the Lord will be your everlasting light, and God will be your glory. The sun will go down no more, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands that I might be glorified. The least one shall become a clan, the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. Here's what he says about the new day in this text. He says, in that day, there will be no more mourning. There will be no more tears. There will be everlasting life. There will be security. There will be prosperity for all people. What all these passages are describing is a new order of things. They're describing life the way it was meant to be lived, life without the curse of sin and death. Now just imagine for a second what that would be like if darkness and sin and death were not a factor. It would mean no more death. It would mean no more sickness. It would mean no more breakdown in relationships. There would be justice. There would be equity. Now the, the Hebrew people, the Jewish people have a term for this in their language. They call it shalom. Now you might be familiar with that word. We often translate that word in English as the word peace. But actually the Jewish concept of shalom is much bigger than how we tend to understand peace. We tend to understand peace as the absence of conflict. But for the Jewish people, shalom is, is more akin to what we would say in English, the word harmony. Okay, so here's how one lexicon, Strong's Concordance, here how, here's how it defines the concept of shalom. It says shalom means completeness, wholeness, health, peace, 
welfare, society, soundness, tranquility, prosperity, perfectness, fullness, rest, harmony, the absence of agitation or discord. In modern Hebrew, there are related words. The words are shalem, which means to pay for something, and shulam, which means to be paid in full. Jewish rabbis say that shalom is the theme of the Bible. You want to know what the whole Bible is about? It's about the restoration of shalom. Now, of course, Jewish rabbis, they're referring to the Old Testament alone. But if you look at the New Testament, this concept of shalom is still there. Oftentimes, it's what is referred to as the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. If you remember back to our text in Matthew chapter 4, that's what it says, that from that time forward, Jesus began preaching, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What's he talking about? He's talking about the new day is coming. The light of the world has come into the world. The time is dawn. The new day is about to be here in full force. So get ready. It's the idea of shalom. Shalom was the original state of things before sin entered the world. When sin came in, the state of shalom was lost. And for the Jewish people, the hope of the Messiah is that he will come and he will restore shalom. For the Jewish people, shalom is what they long for. It's what they hope for. In Hebrew, when you meet somebody on the street, you say shalom. That's the greeting. You don't say hi, hello, what's up. You say shalom. And and their greatest city, think about this, the city where the temple was built, the city where the presence of God was to be, where people were to come and meet with God. What was it called? Jerusalem, the city of shalom. This was their hope for that city. The presence of God would rest there. The Messiah would come and rule and reign and he would usher in the kingdom of shalom. This hope is that the Messiah would come and he would restore the shalom that sin had broken and he would eradicate sin and he would judge the nations and establish an everlasting kingdom where he would reign and rule as king. As Christians, this is our same hope as well. This is the hope of the entire Bible, and here's the thing, the message of Christmas is that with the coming of Jesus, the dawn has begun, and soon the night will be over, the new day will fully come. When Jesus entered the world, the darkness was broken, the light began, the dawn began, and now we wait that eager expectation, with eager expectation, we await the time when he will fully come, and the new day will be here in fullness. The restoration of shalom is exactly what we see portrayed in Revelation where it tells us how things will be at the end of all things when Jesus comes to judge the nations and he comes to bring the new heavens and the new earth and it says the old will pass away. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That's shalom. And this is the new day that is dawning. This is the hope of Christmas. This is the promise of the gospel. The message of Christmas is that the light of God has dawned on us who dwell in darkness and a new day is coming and will soon be here. And so the the one question I want to leave you with today is this. Have you received this gift? To you, a child is born. To you, a son is given. Have you received that gift of what God did for you in Jesus Christ, what he is doing for you as he ushers in this new day. Have you embraced the gospel? I urge you to do so today, maybe for the first time, maybe for the 500th time. I urge you to embrace Jesus, the light of the world who took on our darkness in order to set us free and bring about a new day. Amen?
you please stand with me and let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are the one who brings light into our darkness. Lord, we thank you that you are the one who has come to take our darkness upon yourself. You might untangle us from it, or you might set us free and bring us into a new day. And Lord, we desire that. We desire that shalom. Lord, we desire to live in the light as people who have been transferred from one kingdom to the next. The kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of light in you. Lord, help us that we might walk in light in view of this new day that is dawning. So we give you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in northern Colorado from our Advent series, Love Came Down, a look at the meaning and message of Christmas. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.